Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. David Nash. He is the Dean Emeritus of Jefferson College of uh, Population Health um, and a practicing uh, internist. Uh, David, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks again. So we're talking how COVID crashed the system. I'm just going to say that's a great title. Thank you. Um, obviously, aware of uh, the experiences, the challenges. You've put this all into a book, and I had a little bit of time to sort of review this, so I want to sort of focus on several things. But first of all, tell us about your personal experiences through this uh, pandemic from the initial phases, if you would. Sure. So, Nick, great to be here. Great to be together face to face. Thank goodness we're able to do this. Yes, right? exactly. Let's just take a moment. Right. So, look, uh, how COVID crashed the system. This is uh, my labor of love, my guilt trip, my uh, exorcism <laughs> uh, during the uh, almost three years of the pandemic. Uh, I live in suburban Philadelphia. I've been a faculty member at Jefferson for more than 30 years. My wife's a doctor, I'm a doctor, and we have a daughter who is a hospitalist, an attending hospitalist. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, um, she was going to work wearing a garbage bag over her white coat, didn't have enough gloves. You get the idea? Oh, yeah. And so my wife and I were worried that uh, she was going to die. And I was safely at home doing my thing. Charles Wolforth, my co-author, super good guy, science writer in Princeton, called me and said, you need to put a voice to your work. And I said, oh, man, you know, I'm not sure I could do that. But Charles prevailed and together 18 months of work, another six months at the publisher, and here we are. And I'm thrilled to tell you that this book, which is not about COVID, the virus, but about what COVID did to the healthcare system and what opportunities we have to fix what's broken was a very personal journey for me and for Charles and as it turns out for my family. So I, I think, to be fair, I think it did a, a number on all of us in a variety of ways. We yes. all sort of experienced it in different uh, forms. Obviously, you, you know, and your image is, is not lost on me. I, I actually lived a little bit of that when I was uh, doing some support work. Um, and, you know, a, a total travesty of a whole range of issues. Unbelievable. And yet, I, I, I just want to confirm, we are living in the United States of America, right? That's, yes. that, this is yes. where this is coming from. Yes, it is. And so <laughs> you, you hit it on the head, of course, Nick. So look, when Charles and I started the journey together, where, where do you even begin, right? When we started the book, 50,000 Americans had died. And you remember the outrage that that was equal to the number of casualties in the Vietnam War, right? Right. So now we're at 1.3 million, more than any other country on a per capita basis in the world. And, and counting. And counting. It's roughly 3,000 deaths a week in the United States. So, you, you know, look, let's make an analogy. September 
11, 2001. 3,000 Americans die in two attacks, right? 20 plus years later, we're still taking our shoes off at the airport. We have a cabinet level secretary. We're still talking about it. We're still fighting terrorism. And now the current administration, for all kinds of good and bad reasons, has essentially disbanded the entire COVID apparatus at the White House level. Ashish Jha's going back to being dean at Brown Medical. Brown I see. Oh, I had not heard. Right. Wow. So, look, there's amazing. But the three things that Charles Folk and I focused on, it's easy to think about. American individualism, American exceptionalism, and American federalism. Easy. Let's take it one, two, three, right? right. So, American individualism, look, we're still in the covered wagon heading out onto the you know, getting to the Oregon Trail to see the Pacific Ocean, meaning, you know... Can, can, I, can I just interrupt you for a second? Sure. Because I just watched one of the Yellowstone prequels, and I actually know what that means you now, and oh means. my God, that's awful. Right, so it's, uh, you know, we're surrounded, and uh, so uh, not in my backyard, and I know, and uh, you can't tell me what to do because right. I, I'm a survivor. So that's the individualism. Exceptionalism was... Hey, my unbelievably courageous doctor colleagues at Jefferson were on the phone with doctors in Italy pre-Christmas 22 because those Italian doctors were saying to us, hey, get ready. You have no idea how right. bad this thing is. Right. And American exceptionalism was, well, not invented here. I don't have to pay too much attention. Oh my and God. then federalism, you know, you remember when governors were – getting the National Guard to protect the ventilators at the Maryland airports? I do. Right. Or if you had a New York State license plate, you could get arrested driving, driving. into Rhode Island? That's right. Do anybody remember? <laughs> right. So There was, there was checkpoints, stuff. checkpoints going into Florida That's at one right. point. Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So individualism, exceptionalism, wow. federalism, that's what we went through. So, so let's... Let's focus for a second, if we can, on some of the positives that came out, because I think there were. And, you know, you highlight so many areas that I think it's easy to forget, but we shouldn't. And, you know, we'll come back to the whole issue of that decommissioning of the capabilities yes. and the importance of Deadly. that. But before we do that, I want to just highlight a couple of things that I recall as a clinician. One of the things that was set up really quickly was two things. It was a WhatsApp group yes. of clinicians, right. and it was a Google Doc of right. here's what we know and learn. Yeah. Just right. to be clear, WhatsApp yeah. and Google, Google Docs, right. and they were highly effective, highly thankfully. Effective. Yeah. So we actually have a term for that in the book. Uh, let me tell you, yeah, uh, and, and yes, and Google and all the rest. But we described it as the incident command culture. That's what you're really saying. And let me give two minutes on what that's all about. So every hospital that has Medicare paying patients and they're covered by Medicare has to have an incident command, I-N-C-E. An incident occurs, a pandemic being a great example. So there's a whole structure that stood up to handle the emergency. And there's protocols that every hospital in America, 200-bed community hospital, 800-bed Jefferson University Hospital, has an incident command. But what did that evolve into was some really powerful cultural change. 
in our business, specifically the ability to say, hey, this disease is evolving on a daily basis. We want feedback from the people who are at the front lines. We want to know what's working and what's not. And then here's the punchline. We're going to close the feedback loop with doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, and we're going to do it on a daily basis. And that, if we could perpetuate the incident command culture, that is, listen to the people who are on the front lines, it's a tenet of quality improvement, close the feedback loop, give doctors good information about what they could do better, and then get out of their way. That's what Google and WhatsApp were doing on a global scale, but at every hospital, they had a little taste of that in the incident command culture. And we demonstrated that we could do it. We could make changes. We could create guidelines. Yes, we drove a lot of people crazy because science is messy. It is. Disease was messy. The yep. virus didn't follow anybody's instructions, right? Well, and to be clear, we didn't understand it. We didn't understand it. And it was life-threatening. Right. And you look, you know, after the Second World War, a lot of historians coined the phrase, maybe you've heard it, Nick, when the dying stops, the forgetting begins. Right. And I hope that we don't get to that stage. And one of the reasons that Charles and I wrote this book was to tackle the idea that when the dying stops, the forgetting begins. I am not going to let that happen. No. And I think we all, especially doctors, nurses, pharmacists, especially people who are on the front lines, not me, but people like my daughter, they deserve to not be forgotten right. and what we went through. And then what are the implications for our great country? Look, just look around where we are today. At Vive is super exciting. We're the biggest business in America, right? Healthcare, we're 20% of the GDP. Nobody even comes close. The entire military industrial complex is roughly 6 to 8%. We're three times that size. So we have an obligation, I think, to look in the mirror see how we could do a better job. That, that, that's the thesis of how COVID crashed the system in a nutshell. So thinking back to some of the positives, so, uh, you know, move past the, the black garbage bags and, you right. know, the, the shortages. Scary. It was. And, you know, I, it, it's certainly been the topic of a few conversations I've had subsequently. I think we saw or we remember certain specific things, like, as you described, the sort of protection of, there was armed guards around PPEs. Right. There was even almost raids, I think, by That's governments right. on right. testing well, equipment. There were instances of uh, national guardsmen from opposing states facing right. each other at the airport. I mean, like the Civil War kind of it. To receive supplies. To receive supplies. Medical right. supplies, and to be clear. Remember Governor Cuomo? Right? He was a superstar every yep. day on television as opposed to other leaders on television, right. right? Let's not forget. Yes. So we learned a tremendous amount. I mean, I think, again, one of the silver linings that I would say about this was the incredible acceleration of science, our capacity exactly. in under 12 months, right. start to finish from the point of identification to the point of a release of a viable, not, sorry, viable, that seems, that's, that's no. just unfair. Effective. A, Phenomenally Phenomenal. effects. Right. Vaccines. And, and let's give credit to two relatively obscure scientists. 
working at the University of Pennsylvania, our arch rival at Jefferson, who, who <laughs> That's very generous had, of you. had been told multiple times that they'd never get anywhere with that work and that mRNA I, research was, 20 uh, years, I think. was uh, you know, uh, a road with no end. And, you know, hopefully both of them are going to get the Nobel Prize one yes. day. Let's hope so. I, right. I agree. They have deep Philadelphia roots, an amazing team, a guy and a gal. Uh, they had 20 years of work, right. right? Which, had we not had that, likelihood would be you and I would not be sitting here today having this conversation. And, and I think to am amplify that point, it's about the basic science that we don't always know is going to course, work out. That's right. That is essential to the foundation of building all of those blocks that we and manage. Another reason why you and I agree, science is messy. You don't know what's going to succeed and what's not. And the original clinical trials on both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were a home run, far better oh, I, than I, they I, had ever expected. Right. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, from my perspective, a little bit of a downside to that was that it, it changed people's expectations uh, and understandings yes. of right. vaccines right. to, oh, that's what I expect from a vaccine, right. which wasn't the norm. Right. So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. David Nash. He is the uh, dean, uh, founding dean emeritus uh, for the Jefferson College of Population Health. We're just talking about his book, How COVID Crashed the System. Uh, some of the positives that we saw and experienced, I think. Um, let's talk a little bit about the negatives and, you know, some of the failures. I, I think the surprise... There are a lot me, of failures. Well, there was, right. uh, to be clear, and, you know, a million of them or, or just in this country plus that we could talk about. But when you think about some of the things that we learned, we were, we were a little bit slow in some instances. Sure to share or even understand some basic things. Sure. Airborne. Airborne. Um, proning, proning in intensive care. Dexamethasone. Well, I was going to say steroids, which right. I'm going to say as a, an old guy right. from old medicine. Guy. You and me both. Well, well, was it, right. Wasn't that the most obvious thing? Uh, maybe not. Right. No. So look, let's also remember, I mean, imagine if you were an intern or a resident at Elmhurst mm. Hospital in Queens, ground right. zero, yeah. right? And, and you're an orthopedist in training or a psychiatrist in training, and now you're intubating patients one after another. They're dying in front of you. You're risking your life. I mean, we forget the intensity of it. And look, let's be straight for our listeners. The fact that it was in a hospital that served poor people of color, a good part of the country said, well, I'm going to look the other way. Let, let me tell you a story, Nick. You know, I've been... Since the book came out right after Labor Day of 22, it's a fantastic opportunity. No one ever thought it would be a bestseller. All the money is going to Jefferson. We're selling a thousand copies a month. I've been all over the country, back and forth. And I have had incredible stories of people coming up to me at a book signing, sharing what they went through. And to your point, I've had other stories of people in my face. Oh, I bet. For example... Don't you think those million people would have died anyway? Uh, I mean, come on. And this is with highly educated individuals, right? right? So I've Some also with had... with after their names. Unbelievable. And then I've been in, in environments where, you know, the fancy dinner's over and I've signed books and most of the wait staff who are minority come up and give me a huge hug. No, so I've had both those experiences. You, you mean those essential staff exactly. that we didn't know were essential exactly. staff? Right. Right. At, who died at 
huge disproportionate right. levels in our own great city. The people who kept the trains running and the subway so right. the nurses and doctors could get to Jefferson, they were dying at 3x, 4x, and 5x the general population. So if we forget oh, that, shame on us. True, truly no laughing matter. So let's talk about the future. So we've had our pandemic for this century. We won't be having another one for another century. Well, <laughs> let's hope you're right. I mean, well, I, I'm, I, I uh, joke, but I'm not. Uh, let's hope I, I you're right. Let's be clear. Even if we don't have one as bad, we're certainly going to see more of this. It's well, it's absolutely inevitable. Right. I, I just I think that. most of the best scientists in the country would agree with you. You know, personally speaking, I was very happily surprised that during the great Chinese holiday migration back in January, I, I was petrified yeah, I that, that a mutation would emerge when 800 million people decide to go on vacation. Uh, so in, far, in an unvaccinated, in an unvaccinated country. So, so far, so good. I hope I don't have to eat my words one day. But right. right. So we're going to see something. And yet, to your point earlier on of once the fighting's over, right. we start forgetting. Getting. We are forgetting. Of course we are. Why? Right. So part what of it, yeah. is wrong? I know. I'm sorry. Can I just reaffirm we're still in the U.S.? We haven't right. moved again? Right. Okay. So I'll tell you what we learned in our work and, you know, being absorbed in this every day for months on end. And Charles and I had a 90-minute Zoom call every other week for 18 months to make this work. So, you know, we talked a lot about COVID. So I think when... You, you, you interview the experts, the philosophers, the sociologists, the anthropologists, all of which we did. A couple of amazing things emerged. So in countries where they had trust in the government, mm -hmm. just let that hang in the air for a moment, right? Where there was Which, which country right, was this? Right, Australia, okay. New Zealand, Israel, Germany, Sweden, Norway where they had trust in the government, that was the key characteristic. And the second characteristic was what the Aussies call uh, mateship, M-A-T-E, mateship. You're my mate. And, That's truth. Yeah, I'll get that. Right. And, right. and what happens to you, I care about. It happens, happens to me. So between trust and mateship, those countries, you know, they figured it out. They did the tough decision-making, they did the quarantine, they wore the mask, they did all the things. Look, I, trust and mateship, that does not describe our country. It doesn't, sadly, right? And so I think that conquered everything. Uh, it, culture eats the science for breakfast. And I think we saw an awful lot of that going on. That's the other thing we wanted to call attention to. And then look at our own industry, right? Um, billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars pumped into healthcare for good reason, keep the thing afloat. Here we are at five, you know, but lifespan in the United States is in reverse gear, yeah. right? Despite all okay. the amazing technology you see surrounding us right here at this moment. For the last two years. The last two years and the four horses of the emotional uh, apocalypse, right? Alcoholism, suicide, opioid abuse, and depression pre-COVID, we're driving life expectancy in the reverse direction. Now you add isolation, domestic abuse, violence, education, 
a whole generation of children trying to play catch up ball, including my own grandchildren. Come on. So these are the forces that we have to contend with. Today. So all, all compounded by that particular pandemic. Absolutely. No Absolutely. So look, you're an expert. Let's be frank. This is, this is your area of expertise in terms of management and dealing with population health. You set up the original training institution. Yes, first school this, of its kind in the country. Right? right. Right. What does David do? Yeah. Well, it's a great question, Nick. So part there's of There's no waving of magic wand. No, there's no saying. waving of magic wand. Look, um, I'm on the other side of the work mountain now, you know. Uh, 33 years on the faculty and still counting. My goal is to get to 35 years of service. Uh, no single person is going to change the system. But if this book stimulates conversation for the current leaders to start to think differently and achieve what others have called the true north for our industry, which is, of course, improving health, right? That's our true north. Right. And sadly, sadly, we've lost sight of the core goal to improve health. It's not about health care delivery. It's about improving health for the population. We like to say, you know, for the last decade in our college, we want to go upstream and shut off the faucet instead of what we do every day in healthcare, mopping up the floor, right? And I'm tired of mopping up the floor. That's a very expensive, ineffective, not safe way to run 20% of the GDP of the biggest economic engine in the world. So are we going to wake up and do things differently? Essentially, that's what the last couple of years of my career is going to be focused on. So you're going to create the new welfare system that well, we can all Well, I'm not going to for. create it. I'm going to pester the people in charge to start thinking more broadly about the issues. So where would you start? Who would you start pestering? Well, let's do it right at home. Our great city of Philadelphia, it's been my professional home for 42 years, birthplace of our country, five medical schools, one out of four doctors passes through Philadelphia at some point in her training in America. You, you win the occasional football game or yes, something. Yes, occasionally yeah, too, right. Oh, yes, the Eagles. It was a disappointment. <laughs> you had to bring that up. But seriously... Well, healthcare is it. the biggest business. I wasn't talking about that football. Anyway, right. go on. Healthcare is the biggest business in Philadelphia too, right? And if you took Sidney Kimmel Medical College, Jefferson Medical School, and Drexel, those are the two largest private medical schools in America. And yet our county where these schools are located is the least healthy county in the state of Pennsylvania. Let me make sure everybody gets that, right? So how can we claim that we're improving health? I mean, the sad truth is we got a lot of work to do. And in my closing years, <laughs> and it's great to be Medicare eligible, you know, I, I want to continue. Is, to it, is it though? Uh, yes. Yes, sure it is. Sure it is. Uh, and great to have a, you know, 40 year perspective on the problem. But it, it it's not going to be you and me, Nick. It's going to be my doctor daughter and her peer group who are going to be saddled with making the changes that we call for in how covid crashed the system yeah so i'm I, i'm just going to call out my so my daughter's pgy1 ah, there you medicine go. Oh, great and she is in the top burnout yes sadly profession right. you know specialty already suffering extraordinarily and you know i worry day to day about well, that why don't we spend the last minute on that since we share this with our two daughters pretty amazing right right so look uh, right across the way 
Byron Scott and the team were talking about, I'm not your hero. You're damn right. Yeah. Okay. So let's get over that. It's not heroism we want. It's humanism, not heroism. Heroism is stoicism, individualism, autonomy, lack of teamwork. Everything that's wrong with American healthcare is heroism. Heroism equals burnout and suicide. Yes, it does. We want humanism and communication and an ethical allocation of resources, ending structural racism, all the other issues. That's what we want. We don't want hero doctors. We want humanist doctors. Big difference. So, David, I trust you. And I want to be your mate. All right, right man. Struth? Mateship. You got that. It's we've good. got mateship. All right. Unfortunately, as we have each and every week, uh, we've run out of time. Just remains for me to thank you. Thank you. It's been a tremendous pleasure. David, thanks for joining me on the Great show. Great to be together. Thanks again. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. 